Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks! Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you're listening to Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And I am extremely honored today to have my own father on the podcast, the one and only Mr. Len Oppenheim. Hi, Dad. How are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and uh, I'm so thankful that you were willing to come on and share. Uh, as you know, your other only son, Sam, was our first guest, so it's cool to have you coming on. So uh, I guess I actually have a little bit of a plan for part of this interview because I've heard you talk about your philosophical awakenings. So I figured I would just cut to the chase and let everyone know that you're from Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, <laughs> you grew up there, and then you went to college, and I kind of wanted you to tell a little bit your story of how you kind of came into philosophy and uh, thinking about metaphysics. Do you mind? No, not at all. It'd be my pleasure. Awesome. So probably start like with when you're 18 or so? Yeah, I, I think it's important to know that um, for most of my life until I went to college, I was what I would call a physical materialist. I believed that uh, life and the, the solar system, the whole universe was a random event and there was no meaning to, of, to the, there was no meaning of life that you couldn't ask what is the meaning of life and that you only had one body and you might as well use it up and it didn't matter if you died when you were 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 because uh, it just didn't matter. So um, when I went to college, a few things happened. First of all, I had a roommate who was uh, into uh, metaphysical philosophies and Eastern religions and things like that. He was one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And uh, real quick, for context, this is like 1968 about? This was 1960. I was a freshman in college in 1964. 64, okay. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think, you know, back then Eastern thought was not popular, right? Correct. This, my, my roommate's name was Steve Sklar, and he was brilliant. He, he learned German so he could read uh, one of the philosophers in, in its own language. You know, this was before he went to college. And when he was 13 years old, he had an operation. He had ulcers or something, and he died on the operating tra- table. And he had what we now call a near-death experience, and it changed his life. He began to see things in a metaphysical way. And after he woke up and he was recuperating in the hospital, there was a TV show with the famous yogi on it. I'm not sure who it was. And it got him into uh, Eastern religion and metaphysical thought. And so he tried to communicate that to me, but um, I wasn't really ready. I was intrigued, but I couldn't really grok it. I couldn't really understand it on a visceral level. Intellectually, I could play with it. But emotionally and viscerally, I, I, I just didn't really get it. Um, the second thing that happened was my girlfriend at the time, who was at the University of Massachusetts, uh, had a house mother who gave her a seven-page printout of a paper written by a- Abraham Maslow. Maslow was unique among psychologists in that he studied healthy people, not uh, sick people. And he developed something, uh, a philosophy called uh, uh, self-actualization, 
He, he went around the world finding people who were, quote, self-actualized. And these people, everything about their life was great. They, they loved life. They were athletic. They had the best sex of anyone. Uh, they loved so many people, and it was great being around them. And when I read that paper, you know, I decided that there was nothing else in life worth striving for besides self-actualization, because that would that would make your life the way you know superior to the modern mundane life that was so boring and not acceptable to me. And so, at, at this juncture of your evolution you were seeking to be like a superior human, but it still wasn't really metaphysical. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, actually, what happened was um, that I was more open to things. I was not, I, I pride myself on being open-minded. I, I was, I tried not to be closed-minded and I was willing to be open to things. And then what happened, I was now in 1969, the fall of 69, I was in graduate school. I was starting a PhD program in English literature at Columbia in New York City. And after a few weeks, I realized that it wasn't for me. It was too pedantic. It, they were studying Edgar Allan Poe, and I thought they missed everything he had to say that was important. They were more interested in what he had for breakfast and who he went to lunch with. So I, I decided to leave, uh, leave the program, and I called up my girlfriend. This was a different girlfriend. She was a senior at Boston University, and I asked her if I could come up and stay with her for a while uh, while I decided where I was going to go the next step in my life. So she said, sure. So I packed a small bag, and I took a taxi out to the airport and grabbed a shuttle flight. At that time, a taxi to the airport was about $2, and a shuttle flight was about $16. You didn't have to be wealthy to travel. And... Um, well, on the way out to the airport, I, I didn't bring anything to read for the flight. So I picked up a, uh, a copy of Sports Illustrated, and uh, I read the, all the articles in it that were of interest to me, and I still hadn't landed. The only article that was left was an article by an astrologer that said you can pick the winners of sporting events by doing their astrological charts. And since I was a gambler and I liked to bet on football and baseball and stuff, I, I found this interesting because in a magazine like Sports Illustrated, it gained credibility. It wasn't, you know, uh, wasn't the National Enquirer. So while I was at, my girlfriend was in taking classes, I went to Harvard Square in Cambridge and I went, I had looked in the yellow pages. I found a metaphysical bookstore and I went in there and I bought about seven or eight books on astrology. The owner of the store helped me pick them out. And when I read the books, I couldn't stop like gasping because it made so much sense. There was scientific proof and so on and so forth. Uh, in fact, I got into it so much that I decided I was going to open a computerized horoscope business with a friend of mine. But uh, one thing led to another. And while I was doing uh, setting up this computerized horoscope business, I was in Florida visiting a friend, and we went out. Actually, I learned to water ski that day. And we went, um, I told his mother what I was doing, and she said, oh, there were a lot of charlatans in philosophy, but there's a lady down the street who's the real deal. I'd like to introduce you to her. So I said, sure. So she called up the lady, 
and her name was Mrs. Davis. And I went to the house and she said, uh, Davis's house, and she said that um, that uh, something came up and she'd have to take about 15 or 20 minutes, but she gave me a book that was written by her husband. And it was a book called, uh, This is Reality by Roy Eugene Davis. And it was a translation and commentary on the uh, Sutras of Patanjali, who was an Indian saint. Uh, it's, it's just funny to me because growing up, I've heard you tell the story a few times, and I, I always enjoy it. It's not actually boring or anything like that. But it is funny that my career as an indexer, a book indexer, I've come across this guy, Roy Eugene Davis, like 15 times now. And so it's just always interesting to me that, I mean, this guy was pretty famous, actually. Oh, yeah, he was. He was a disciple of Parmananda Yogananda. And after I spoke with his wife, he came in and he was, he, he was like something about him. It was like he had everything that I always wanted to be. I mean, it wasn't like we talked about it. It was his presence. And this was like proof positive to me that things about which I had thought of philosophically, such as enlightenment and higher states of consciousness, was very possible. And he, he introduced me into Kriya Yoga. And I took a course with him on the Bhagavad Gita, and that really got me started on the spiritual path, which eventually took me to transcendental meditation, where Dina and I, my wife and Mike's mother, uh, both learned to become teachers and pursue uh, improving our lives. Yeah, and to this day, I think, ironically, the thing I most disliked as a child, which was having parents who meditated and they'd be quiet and tried to tell me to meditate. To this day, it's probably the best gift you guys gave me, you and mom, which is t teaching me about it and normalizing it. And so I think that was perfect. That was actually exactly what I wanted to start with was just kind of how you went from, <clears throat> like most people, just a very normal person and you were in college and then throughout your 20s, all these changes happened. So uh, you became a transcendental meditation teacher before you were 30, right? Um, no, I was uh, in my early 30s. Got it. And then you had Sam, my older brother. Right. And then, okay. And so, so that's a great uh, leaping off point for now that you got that and then you had a family and everything, how much has shifted about your philosophy on death and dying and the human life since that point? So between then and now, speaking to you today. So when I was uh, a physical materialist, I didn't care about death or dying. It just wasn't important to me. It was like I was just a piece of flesh and you know when it was over it was over i didn't fear it i didn't look forward to it um it just wasn't something on my mind plus i think when you're young you tend to think you don't may not acknowledge it uh but you really tend to think that you're immortal that you you know nothing's going to kill you which i mean i did a lot of crazy things and none of it killed me so i feel at that point now that i'm older um uh, if i can jump ahead and I'm, seven, and I'm 74 years old, um, I feel differently. I feel, especially with having um, children and grandchildren, that I would like to live as long as possible to see how they do and to perhaps help them in any way I can. It gives me an incentive. In between the, the two states, there was a time when I believed in reincarnation, and I thought that... Um, not that I don't believe in reincarnation now, it's a complex thing. But at that point, I thought that it was important to 
lead your life in a very moral way so that when you were reincarnated, you'd have a better life the next time. Okay. So, so it was like your, your moral system at this point was be good now because you'll pay for it in a different life. It wasn't be good now to be good. It was like more still not selfish, but you know what I mean? Self-centered. Right. That's the way I was. No question about it. And so, and so, uh, again, this is me trying to trace out changes in you because as your son, I, I didn't give a crap about any of this and I wasn't paying attention to you or, or how you felt. So your entire first 20 years of my life, I wasn't paying attention to your psychology. So how much from the time you had Sam and I, and you, and you switched careers and you moved to California and you were in the, um, the world of business, like how often were you really concentrating on spiritual stuff versus how often were you just living your life? I was mostly just living my life. Because, and then I asked it that way because I noticed a huge shift in you uh, right after I graduated from high school in 1999 and you and my mother sold our house in California and moved to Fairfield, Iowa, of all places. You want to get into that? Right. Well, um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who founded Transcendental Meditation, started a university. It originally was in Santa Barbara, California. But... Um, in Fairfield, Iowa, there was a, a for-profit university that eventually went out of business, and the whole campus was for sale, and the TM movement bought it, and they moved the university there, and Maharishi suggested to people that they come live in Iowa and create a spiritual community, which was something I was always interested in. I, I went there for a few courses and things like that, and then after I retired from the stock market, um, and Dean and I agreed that we wanted to try living there. And we did. We lived there for about 10 years. Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. The people are in, incredible. And the only problem was the weather's horrible in Iowa. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're doing this podcast. You're on the phone, obviously, but we both live in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where you moved after that. Um, and so, um, so at that juncture, when you were living in Iowa specifically for those 10 years, um, were you still doing meditation and all this stuff because you wanted your next life to be better slash okay, or, or were things shifting and you were thinking on a different level? I'm not sure exactly. I, I think that it was mainly, um, it was a combination that you could do good and be good at the same time. And, you know, that living there, what, was exciting because all of the people there were interesting. They were, it was like in the middle of Iowa, there was a, a, a community of people from all over the world. I remember we had an Indian cook and we had a uh, German housekeeper and you know stores were run by people from all the different countries. It was quite an interesting place. I agree. I mean, definitely, yeah. Right. So, and the people, you know, it was different when you went out with them. You talked about philosophical things, spiritual things, religious things. And a lot of them had a lot of great experiences that they could share, uh, which was great. You know, most of us think in terms of we have an intellect and we have an emotion. Or we have intellect and emotions, I should say. Uh, but I think beyond that, there's something called direct experience, which... Um, there was a poet, William Blake was his name, who said, you know, you can see the entire world in a grain of sand. And A.H. Uh, Maslow, who I mentioned before this, talked about oceanic experiences. 
And th those are experiences that some people would call mystic, but where you transcend the ordinary and you begin to get a sense that you can't really talk about uh, in linear language of experiences of knowingness and seeing things that go beyond uh, the everyday experiences that most people seem to be stuck in. That's totally fascinating. And I want to relate it now to a statement you made earlier that I also agree with, which is, again, as your son, I notice shifts in your in your consciousness from my perspective. I don't notice all of them, but I would agree that when you had grandchildren, something really changed. Like the way you talked about politics, the way you talked about world events, the way you talked about life changed. So is that a transcendent experience having grandchildren? You have three now. You have a fourth on the way. Um. Well, it, it's. I think it's. It's the better part of um, evolution, individually and societally. Uh, it it just makes a huge difference. It's, it's having children. When you're having children and bringing them up, you're very much caught up in in a lot of things that you're doing yourself, your own career, your own friendships, financial matters, and so forth and so on. But by the time you're more retired and you're those matters are not as on the front burner. There's something about having grandchildren that just really makes a huge difference. That's cool. That's very cool. So you recognize that difference and you know it's there, but do you um, have you ever like analyzed it yourself? Have you thought about why that is? No, I haven't really. Mm -hmm. And uh, similarly, do how often now that you're 74 you said and you have grandchildren how often do you actually think about the next life that you referred to earlier like do you still believe in reincarnation and the next life it's very complicated um when i was growing up in high school and in college i was very much into literature and philosophy but not into science at all later on in my life i got very interested in physics especially quantum physics and Einstein's relativity that intellectually open up a, a different horizon or point of view of how the world really works. So it, from an intellectual point of view, based on relativity, there's no such thing as time. So if there's no such thing as time, then everything that's ever happened or ever will happen is already on the table and um there's no such thing as linear time so if if there is such a thing as a person living in different lives in different bodies then they're they've all happened at the same time or outside of time it's i can't really express it it goes beyond conceptual thinking but you do feel it and believe it is that correct i definitely believe it yes but that doesn't mean that it's on the front burner off 24 hours a day. I it I believe it and it affects me when I think about it, but a lot of the time naturally I'm not it's not what's most on my front burner on my mind. Yeah, and actually it's interesting cuz everyone has a different life and uh some of us have scares that make us think about death early, some don't. Um I've had like a few but they're not, you know, super scary or anything. Um have you ever had an experience that really made you think about death like personally? Yeah, I have a few a few times. Um but I, I can't really recall uh, any of them. Mm -hmm. Have you ever like been on a plane and it started to lurch, like anything like that? Or are these like more health things? 
Um, I was on a plane once uh, where we were flying through a terrible storm. It was actually when we went uh, when we went to the um, Southeast Asia. It was from uh, from North Vietnam to Luang Prabang, which is in uh, Laos. And uh, I had I knew that that particular flight two months before had crashed and everybody died you know, the same route, the same airline. And we hit a terrible storm of lightning and, and thunder and the plane was bouncing and it was a small plane. That was scary. But I never thought I was going to die at that time. But it was scary. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions I want to ask and um, I'm trying to think what order to ask them in. But what I what I want to get to for sure, because you touched on it, is um, this idea that it's all on the table. Um, you, you introduced it to me, I'd say 15 years ago. And I remember just like wanting to laugh at you. Like that sounds so silly. And now every single day I'm alive, it becomes more and more obvious to me that that is probably the best explanation for what's going on. It doesn't mean it's true or not. So I'm curious, um, you've met this guy, Roy Eugene Davis, who's pretty famous. You met, um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who's very famous. I mean, he taught the Beatles. He's in tons of pictures if people want to look him up. And then you also met this guy, Ramesh Balsakar, who I believe is the person who kind of pushed this things have already happened. Uh, sorry, not happened, but that time doesn't exist. Is that correct that he's the one? Uh, yeah, he's more in that camp than the others. Exactly. So how much was your experience with him a life-changing experience for you? And how, if so? Um he he put things into context uh he he made he was the best person in my opinion at integrating the physical and the metaphysical he he was very um he talked a lot about enlightenment the favorite thing he said about enlightenment is you never know when you could get enlightenment when you could get enlightened he says it could happen at any time it could happen while you're on the toilet and if it does happen, don't forget to wipe your ass. But that's the kind of, you know, that's something that most Indian gurus, you wouldn't expect them to talk about or to put into those kinds of words. He was a very interesting guy. He had been the president of the Bank of India. And then afterwards, he became a disciple of Nisargadatta, who was a famous Advaita scholar and sage, rather. And he, he took over for Nisargadatta. And uh, Wayne Lickerman took over from him. You've been to see Wayne, and I've been to see Wayne. I think Wayne's terrific, too. Wayne is the first person for me that I felt that feeling you're talking about earlier of um, when you were with Roy Eugene Davis, where you just feel that someone feels different. Like, and not, I mean, tons of people feel different, but like in a better way. Like, you just see like the peace. Um, and yet he looks so normal and he has like a wry, sarcastic grin and things. So, yeah. So you met this Ramesh uh, Balsakar who now has passed away, but that was in like, was that in like 2008? Do you remember? Uh, no, it was earlier than that. It was, uh, it was, I think, 2003 or 2004. Oh, okay. So you've met a lot of important people, a lot of famous people, and, and you seek, as your son, that's something I see in you, is that you're always seeking really greater truths um you, you know you also read stock market articles and and pol political magazine or not magazines but articles and like i mean you're you're invested in the real world but as your son something that was always noticeable to me was that you were really invested in this other 
world, which is now my world and the whole point of this podcast. So where are you with that right now, today? Where are you in your metaphysical journey? Um, I'm pretty comfortable now. Uh, you know, I think that Ramesh and Wayne Lickerman uh, have emphasized acceptance of what is. And I think that's the best thing that we can develop is to be uh, non-judgmental and to understand that the ultimate truth is not understandable. And, and so that you don't have to keep looking for it. You just have to be satisfied with accepting this incredible uh, universe, this incredible planet, this incredible being alive, consciousness, all of these things which are beyond description, you can just accept it. And, and um, that's where I am. Yeah. And actually, this is kind of what I was trying to say earlier. The first time you introduced me to this, just accept it. It's, it's already been, it's in the can is the phrase you like to use. And I like that a lot. Yeah. What Ramesh Balsakar teaches is that um, it's, uh, that the entire reality is like a movie that's already been shot. It's in the can, as they used to say, because they used to keep the movies in the big cans. And what happens is that most of us, can only see that part which is being screened at the present time. But in history, there have been people that have seen the past and the future, and uh, which gives credence to that. Actually, that's literally what Nostradamus claimed, was that he could see like the real from the future, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the two, two that come to mind are Nostradamus and Edgar Cayce. I mean, if you, re if you read There Is a River, which is the first authorized biography of Edgar Cayce. Um, it's it's mind-boggling what he was able to accomplish, and it's all well-documented and scientific. If you believe it, and I think if you fail to believe it, you're not open-minded because it was so well-documented. If you believe that, then you have to believe that life is spiritual as well as physical. A lot of people can't be open-minded. Have you ever heard of the SRI, Stanford Research Institute? So they they um, they did a bunch of studies on remote, what's called remote viewing, where a person could sit and tell you exactly what something was going on in another place. And they showed the work, which was extremely statistically significant, to a famous physicist. And he said, you know, even if I knew this to be true, I couldn't believe it. And to me, that, that's, that's the problem with science and with most people is they, they can't open their minds to other possibilities to be open-minded. Well, that's fascinating, and I agree. And as your son, you've helped me become so open-minded that most of my friends hate it, um, but they also like it. So, um, yeah, and I think, I think what I want to end on is uh, it's, a, it's a weird question, but I, I think you'll know why I'm asking it. What do you think is harder when you're accepting what is? Accepting the world around you or accepting yourself? Um, the world around you for me. Yeah, and I wanted to know because I think that that's kind of both of those sides of the coin are things I think people aren't thinking about when they hear this acceptance philosophy. And that's part of why I was so mad when you first started telling me about it is that I felt like it was a cop-out that you were letting yourself off the hook too much. And now as I get older and I see you being peaceful yourself, I'm jealous and I wish it was the other way. Cause for me, it's the opposite as your son. I'm, I'm, I have more trouble accepting myself than I do the world. Right. I feel very blessed. I've had a very good life. I don't have a bucket list. I was fortunate enough to, to do things that I wanted to do when I was young enough to enjoy them. 
something I highly recommend to everyone. That's awesome. And I, um, uh, we are running up against the wall here, so I am just floored. This was so much fun. And uh, like I told your son, my brother, Sam, I'll probably have you back on because there's a lot more to dig into here. But is there anything you want to add before we go? No, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you, Len slash my dad, for helping us put another nail in the coffin. As always, this has been another episode of Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living, and I'm Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon.